Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. Joining me is my good buddy Justin Cuthbert, who covers the Toronto Maple Leafs diligently for Yahoo Sports. And considering the amount of Nick Shore versus Jason Spezza content you provide, I'd say even obsessively at times. Justin, what's going on, man? Yes, it is obsessive over time, but that might be over because after 18 straight games, Nick Shore taken out of the lineup by Sheldon Keefe. So I'm looking forward to not having to beat this dead horse any further. So let's get right to it then. I mean, you know, the Mike Babcock news comes out on what was it like when the wednesday afternoon or something like that yeah wednesday afternoon yeah and you know whenever news like that comes out especially regarding the leaves it really captures the attention of twitter and everyone's talking about it and i I think people are still talking about it and we're going to release this podcast on friday afternoon so hopefully people can consume it sometime during their uh hopefully lovely busy evening uh, weekends and it'll still be relevant but you know i guess for me the surprising part for this was we can get into what went wrong and all the flaws of both Mike Babcock and of what Kyle Dubas did and who should take all the blame. But it feels like both parties knew each other and knew kind of who they were in bed with heading into this season after how last year had ended in that defeat in round one against the Bruins. And they decided to roll it back and kind of bring back the same group once again. And then now it reached a kind of a boiling point where it became so unpalatable that they had to do something to try and salvage the season. But I feel like we can't be surprised that it went this way. Maybe that it went this badly this quickly. But I mean, all of this stuff was like the writing was on the wall heading into this season, even before it started. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. I mean, I I do believe they sort of got into the, or at least the state of mind that they could sort of tread water here and give it one more chance uh, in the playoffs. And that really wouldn't be an issue. Obviously, when we go through the first 23 games and they have nine wins and only six in regulation, they came against six of the worst teams in the league. Um, that it just wasn't viable anymore. But, but it, I mean, it, it, it is a significant issue. I think we could be looking back at this year 
um, come April, middle of April, and if they are in or, or not in, I think we could be looking at that decision as really uh, what sort of potentially wasted this season. And I'm, I'm more interested in sort of Brendan Shanahan's role in all this because he was the one uh, that delivered that, that initial statement that Babcock was, um, Babcock was let go. And I think he was also very involved, this is speculative, but very involved in keeping him around for maybe one more season. I think if it was all up to Kyle Dubas, uh, that decision might have been made earlier. Uh, so his role in all this is is certainly interesting and something to watch. But you're right, um, this is not an ideal situation for Sheldon Keith. It obviously worked out pretty well in his first game. But without that training camp, without time to practice, and with pressured games immediately, he's in a really difficult spot here, and it certainly could have been avoided. Yeah, it could have. I, I guess... Yeah, the sort of respect that Mike Babcock carries in the hockey world because of his resume that he has and obviously his uh, his salary with the Leafs as well, I imagine afforded him a bit more wiggle room than your typical coach. But I think for the Leafs right now, there is a unique sense of urgency, right? There's the fact that they've clearly fallen short uh, of playoff expectations, losing in the first round for three straight years with this core that we all think should have Stanley Cup aspirations. There's the fact that they don't have a playoff series win since 2004. So you put those two things together. But I think, I don't know, do you think it's fair to say that, um, especially this Kyle Dubas regime, maybe not Brendan Shanahan so much, has an extra sense of urgency to sort of um, prove to the hockey world that this way of team building and this sort of new modernized approach of how to uh, put together a core of players can actually work. It feels like there's... Uh, and it's. I think it's completely unfair because I think he's done a great job. And you look at where this franchise was before he came in versus where it is now. It's it's night and day. But it feels like there's these unfair expectations or this sort of he's always having to prove himself to everyone that it can't work. And so there's you kind of throw that on top of all of the Toronto media hype and the fact that they haven't had any playoff success in over a decade now. Yeah, I think I think you're right to a certain extent. I do think he's feeling that pressure for sure. But I think the pressure really starts now. I mean, I think to this point, he's had sort of that built in excuse where he hasn't had the coach that he believes uh, is going to implement the style and and use the parts that he's provided uh, to its best ability. So I think it the attention does turn to him now. But I think the attention was exclusively or for the most part on Mike Babcock before then. Um Another interesting Brendan Shanahan note is that he said uh, that Dubas has not used his single bullet, that he's going to have a lot. The, the leash is not tightening and that, that he still has full backing in his general manager. I think that's important. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that um, people outside the organization are going to be looking at him now. Uh, it's not the coach first. It's not the players first. It's probably going to fall on Kyle Dubas because he had to lay waste one of the greatest coaches in terms of at least accolades in history uh, to get this team to play the way that he wants. So um, it it is a full all-in bet on this uh, new sort of progressive approach. Um, I think a lot is made about how different he is, but I think there are some elements that are are certainly taken and borrowed and just built upon. I don't think this is, you know, him completely uh, swimming in the wrong direction while everybody's going the other way. Um, but they're, they are gambling on the, um, on the beliefs and, and the methods of Kyle Dubas, and I think it really falls on him now. See, it's funny. I wish they had this sense of urgency back in the summer of 2017, and, and this isn't uh, 
revisionist history or kind of the benefit of hindsight because if you go back and listen to my podcast back then I was hammering the Leafs for sort of half measure approaches with how they approached that summer where I get what they were trying to do by bringing in guys like Patty Marlowe and Ron Hainsey because of their veteran leadership experience and how they gelled with uh, helping this young core kind of grow and, and reach their full potential but at the same time the luxury they were afforded with Marner and Nylander and Matthews all still on their rookie deals at that time. I thought they really had the sort of financial flexibility to take massive home run cuts and try to win. But, you know, in hockey, we know that teams generally feel like they have to take some of these lumps and some of these losses in the playoffs before they can get over the hump. And so I think they were biding their time and everyone was excusing it because it's like, oh, you know, these young, fun upstart Leafs, they'll have their moment. But as we're seeing with Winnipeg, as we've seen with many teams time and time again, you kind of can't take that future success for granted. And so now you look at their sort of cap situation and you know, they'll always have the some sort of wiggle room because of their financial might where they can make certain mistakes disappear and they can just cover for uh, certain mistakes they've made by just paying, paying it out. But at the same time, uh, in terms of tangibly improving this roster, without moving one of those core members and really making some sort of a massive swing and shake up there, I don't see many tangible ways where they can, you know, just dramatically improve this roster by bringing in players beyond sort of what they did with the Tyson Berry trade where they get the avalanche to uh, cover for some of the salary and make it fit under their books. But they're going to have to really get creative in terms of actually adding uh, impactful pieces, both if they want to do it this season or down the road, um, acknowledging they do have some money coming over, coming off the books and the cap will be going up. Yeah, 100%. As much as the focus is on Dubas right now, I mean, it's going to just the spotlight is just going to get brighter because, as you mentioned, you know, four players taking up pretty much 50% of the cap, $40 million. Uh, one defenseman signed beyond this season, uh, Frederick Anderson and Morgan Riley are going to be unrestricted free agents before we, we really know it here. Um, and as much tension is on the, the here and now and how important the season is because this is probably the best collection of talent that this team has had in a very long time. Uh, and writing the ship right now is so imperative, but the task is only going to get more difficult. So that makes the pressure even greater on this season, turning things around, getting into the playoffs and seeing what happens, because there's no promise that this team will be uh, as powerful or as strong as they were this year. And and we've seen to this point that that's just not enough to have a, a pretty impressively constructed roster. Yeah, and, we, and it makes it even more difficult. They trade their first rounder last year for Jake Muzzin. They trade their first rounder this year to make make up for that uh, Patty Marlowe mistake. And then all of a sudden, your wiggle room there in terms of having assets that you can move to bring in players that help you right now also kind of diminishes. But all right, let's pop the hood here and really kind of do a bit of a uh, an autopsy of sorts of, of the Mike Babcock era and sort of where things went wrong this year with this team. And I'm going to run through a bit of the numbers here just so people don't think that, um, you know, we're kind of being hyperbolic in terms of this team's struggles because, you know, you look at that slightly sub 500, now 500 record that they had under Mike Babcock and it's the thing that worries me is uh they were really beating up this year on inferior competition i think they were six two and two with a plus seven goal differential against 
teams that didn't make the playoffs last year against teams that did make the playoffs last year. They were 4-8-2, and two, only two regulation wins, which came against San Jose when they were at the peak of their struggles, and Columbus, which isn't really a playoff team anymore and has lost all those players, and they have a minus 12 goal differential in that time. Uh, only the Red Wings have led the season less often than the Leafs at 21% of their games, and so all of that stuff, you put it together, and it's not just the 500 record, it's the fact that... Um, especially against teams that they should be kind of flexing their muscles against and kind of using as barometers or litmus tests, they've really fallen short this year. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's been a, it was an absolutely horrific start and and something that, uh, I mean, it warranted a coaching change flat out. I mean, it's sort of hard to, um, it's hard right now to look back and really identify all the problems because we've seen one and a really abbreviated sort of Sheldon Keefe impact. But the fact of the matter is there was just a massive disconnect between what management was trying to do and what the coaching staff was trying to do. I think Babcock was trying to coach uh, a a team that could dominate through puck possession just through sheer skill when really that's not the – that's really not a possibility in the NHL nowadays. I mean these teams are too sort of – too talented all across the league um, but also very equal in a lot of ways. So playing not to win or not to make mistakes was really – uh, was really backwards thinking, I think, to a certain point, and I think it it's, I think it caught up to them in that aspect, um, but it also caught up to them in terms of the players just growing frustrated. I think there's just there was a really uh, difficult sort of atmosphere around that team as the losses started to mount mount up, and it just it didn't seem like there was an answer. And I think when every when the only thing that you talk about is like, oh, we got we just got to be more uh, show more effort and just be a little bit more aggressive. I mean, you're sort of running out of answers, right? You don't have anything significant or uh, identifiable right. that you can point to to sort of make that impact. So I think there was a it was a serious underperformance from at all levels. I think there's there's problems at every layer, um, and we're going to see if they can turn that around. But again, we've talked about how talented this roster is i mean it it's it just needs to be manipulated the right way and it, it just wasn't being manipulated the right way well seeing the narrative spun from this is always fascinating to me because people can take it so many different ways and we've already seen uh this idea that you know in their first appearance against the coyotes when they win 3-1 under sheldon keith the guys are having fun you know they're finally playing hard they finally look like they want to be there and they want to play for each other and i'm sure there's a certain element of that i mean uh beyond just the fact that they can probably relate to a younger coach and there is some sort of enthusiasm that something is fundamentally changing this season uh we constantly see the teams kind of have that new coach bounce wherever they bring in a new coach and suddenly the play up takes a little bit helps having a new voice we've also seen people say that you know Mike Babcock kind of knew what he was getting into when he was publicly picking fights with Kyle Dubas about the backup goalies and about Jason Spezza and all these little kind of minor things. But I think what I like to look at more here is kind of more tangible stuff that we can point to. And I do think there was ultimately a philosophical difference between the coach and the management when it came to the management providing him with a series of like a, a collection of toys and they had a plan for how they want them used. And then Mike Babcock had an entirely different vision for it. And so ultimately it came down to, well, if you're not going to use the toys that we give you the way we intended to, we're going to find someone else who will be more amenable to that. And I think that's ultimately where we come down to with this beyond all the fluff about uh, him losing the room or, um, you know, the players not being kind of excited to play under him or Kyle Dubas taking it 
personally that he's calling him out in the media. I think if the results were there and if he was doing or enacting the plan that they had in mind for this team, I think all of that stuff could easily be swept under the rug. But you put it all together and all of a sudden you have some major issues. Yeah, and you you really wonder if Babcock was capable of that, though. I mean, I, I do think this is obviously an immensely talented coach, but I think the stubbornness is ultimately what was his undoing. Um, but again, I just think there's there was just such a strong philosophical divide that I don't think they ever would have got to that point, even if you know Babcock wasn't you know guaranteed fifty million dollars and all, and already had his sort of hockey legend cemented for him and was already headed to the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure he could have just. The, the specific way that they wanted him to do because even in just a short morning skate we saw so many differences between how they played uh, and I don't want to make too much of it because again it was just one game and that first coaching night bump that we usually see uh, seemed to be apparent but it was all about puck support mm-hmm. it was puck support in the defensive end through the breakout in the offensive end and it looked like this team was just playing rather than thinking which is interesting because if anything you'd be thinking about oh what does this new coach want me to do but that wasn't the case and i think that's how, that's what happened with babcock they just stagnated they were they were they were sort of uh put in a position where they were thinking about where they had to be on the ice rather than reacting and it was it was it just worked against them um throughout the first few months of the season and as they got out to uh, the other team got out to leads just yep. routinely against them. Uh, they just started playing and they just fell down the same hill every single night. So uh, when they got that early lead, obviously it was somewhat ironic that it was Tyson Berry who sort of represents the divide between coach and GM maybe better than anyone on this team. Uh, it was finally, it was going in the right direction. Momentum was going in the right direction. They were just free to play. And I think uh, when they're free to play, they're playing exactly as Dubas intended, and they can do that under Sheldon Keefe. So we're going to see if they can continue to build on this. But um, the the fact of the matter is they look like they were playing rather than thinking, and that's really important for this team, I think. Yeah, he's definitely seemed like uh, he was much more willing to sort of stubbornly go down with his ship than actually adjust and adapt and sort of win under someone else's um, plan or vision. And, you know, what's interesting to me is everyone talks about uh, their defense and, you know, that's been the sort of running theme with this team. Can they win having so many assets devoted to their forward group? Can they win with this skilled outscore you style? And their defense is 24th ranked this year, so I'm certainly not going to say that they've been great by any means, although I think the goaltending can be a little bit better and that would make the goals against numbers certainly look better. But I think the big issue has been the fundamental change offensively this year, and that's been the striking thing watching this team where they used to be so kind of quick and dynamic and lethal with their ability to counterattack and um, make up for any mistakes they made in their own zone by coming right back and scoring and atoning for it. And this team, I think, was a bit of a classic example of sort of playoffs breaking a team fundamentally where it's like, okay, we can't win this way come the playoffs, so let's completely go the other way and try to overcorrect for it. And we saw them try to transition from being more of a rush team to a cycle team. And I just think this team isn't suited with the personnel to pull that off. And and so the fact that their offensive numbers dipped and their scoring chances dipped, and I don't know how much of this is Dave Haxtell because uh, you don't want to give too much credit to an assistant coach, but we saw this under his Flyers teams. So much of their offense trend, like kind of gravitated out towards the point where they were just shooting so much of their defensemen from low danger areas. And so the overall shot metrics and the overall shot numbers look perfectly fine, but when, when you kind of peel back a layer and you look at the quality of it, 
it really deteriorates. And so that's kind of what stuck out to me with this team where um, they basically had the same defensive issues as last year, but offensively, that was the fundamental shift. And I think that's what, when you look at it, um, kind of perfectly represents that divide between management and coach and the philosophical difference that we mentioned and also um, why it ultimately went so south this year because basically the one thing they did really really well stopped being the case this season yeah I think you nailed it right on the head I think they were they with that over correcting um, statement it seemed like they wanted to play that heavy low game cycle the puck up to the point and just create chances Uh, but they're not equipped to do that I mean this is a fast skilled transition team that was trying to play heavy when that wasn't really you know it's not within their capabilities to be perfectly honest uh i do think the biggest difference from an offensive perspective is the fact that uh the john Tavares second line just has not been what it was i mean uh every iteration obviously there's been injuries so there's been different combinations but every iteration has been outscored pretty significantly uh john Tavares himself has been a non-factor at even strength uh, the goal scoring after scoring 47 goals is obviously not there. And that's why I was interested to see Ilya Mikheyev and Zach Hyman be his wingers uh, under this new regime, at least to start. Obviously, Mitch Marner is going to go back to that spot, we would probably think. But I think that's really been the difference. They had two dominant lines last year. One of them was actually uh, you know, one of the best lines from a two-way perspective as well, being John Tavares and uh, Mitch Marner. And this year, they just haven't had that. They've had really good contributions from that first line who's been able to sort of uh, find some success in transition, but also in that down low puck possession style. Uh, But really, they've had nothing else. And uh, a lot has to do with that transition game with Tavares. I think there's it just hasn't been the same without, you know, having consistency with him and him and Marner and obviously Hyman sort of digging pucks out for them uh, low in the offensive zone. But the injuries have hurt the bottom two lines as well, and they just haven't been a threat at all um so it's been they've been really reduced in some ways especially when they were dealing with all the injuries to a one-line team and that's really affected their offensive output yeah it's tough because on the one hand um you know losing john Tavares for an extended period of time there i believe he missed eight games losing mitch marner then um and even while Marner was healthy in the lineup, he just had the four uh, five on five points, zero five on five goals, and he was pretty ineffective without Tavares in the lineup. And you know, Mar- uh, Morgan Riley and Tyson Berry have supremely struggled as well. And so you can kind of point to that and the backup goaltending issues and go, okay, well, Mike Babcock only could have done so much with all these struggles. I mean, if your best players aren't going to produce, there's only so much you can do. But then. The counterpoint is you look at teams like the Colorado Avalanche who don't have Landis Gog and Rantanen and all these other guys. Um, you know, you look at the Penguins who I can't even list all their injuries this season because it seems like pretty much everyone on that roster other than Jake Gensel has missed at least a handful of games. And Mike Sullivan still has them as this kind of well-oiled machine that finds new contributors and finds ways to cover for those gaps. And so I think on the one hand you feel for Babcock in that sense but on the other hand it is the coach's job especially when you're making as much as he was to uh make the stuff work and move the pieces around and that lack of adjustment which we spoke to was I think apparent and so before we get to the adjustments for Sheldon Keith and how this team's going to look differently and how they can sort of fix this season I want to finish off this conversation about Babcock and I'm going to get a little hot takey here but I, I'm curious for your take um do you think that the way we talk about Mike Babcock, first of all, has changed over the past couple of years as a coach and sort of his abilities doing that. Do you think it should change? And do you think that maybe he's been overrated this entire time? Or do you think he's properly rated? Or do you think now the hate's gone too far and he's actually underrated? 
I think this sort of dark chapter in his career just being the last, I guess, maybe 18 months sort of maybe knocks him down into the correct peg. I, I mean, you can't really um, you can't argue with the Stanley Cup, the the Olympic gold medals, all the success he's had. But what we saw at the end of his tenure in Toronto was him making excuses, not finding solutions. And I think that's ultimately why he finds himself in the place that he's in. And I don't think this was this isn't something that just happened in Toronto. I think that was a big issue uh, in Detroit at the end as well. Well, he was just he was unhappy all the time with what was there. Uh, and I think that seeped in a little bit into sort of how Toronto handled him. I think he got what he want, wanted uh, in his first couple of years where, yeah, they wanted Patrick Marlowe. They went out and got him and they spent the extra year, which is proving to be very costly because he wanted that player. Yeah. Uh, and then when Kyle Dubas took over, that was that was done. He wasn't not. He was not only going to provide Babcock with more toys, but he was going to start taking them away. And has Dubis's influence heightened and expanded? His influence, Babcock's influence, diminished. And I think mm. when he wasn't having his, when he wasn't having it his way all the time, uh, he was not able to adapt. So I think that's just a reality to his career. Um, but fortunately for him, he's been in the position more often than not where he hasn't had to worry about that. Those great Detroit Red Wing teams, and obviously team Canada where he had the very best at his disposal all the time so uh, I think when he came here he was probably the perfect guy for the job um, sort of implementing some structure and, and allowing this team to play sort of the right way in that moment which was you know we can we can make up a little bit for our lack of talent by playing this certain way um, but as this team evolved into a skill first uh, creative bunch that Kyle Dubas wants to see do more than just sort of the baseline uh, he just wasn't the right person for the job, and and that's going to be that's always going to live with him in his coaching career. I'm sure he'll have a chance to sort of atone for that. Uh, there's going to be opportunities for him, but that's yep. the reality right now. Yeah, he certainly both him and I'd say Lou Lamarello um, brought a certain level of kind of respectability and gravitas to this franchise, which they desperately needed because they were such a. Uh, to put it lightly, clown show before those guys came around. And so it really helped kind of reinvigorate and turn this franchise around. But I think we're going to ultimately remember this lasting image right now of him getting fired and him not being able to get them over the hump. And I do give him a lot of blame for that because of those lack of adjustments, because I think a coach's uh, strongest attribute should be their willingness to adapt to the players they have and work with what they're given as opposed to trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. And I guess when you're as sort of established and successful as he is with all that winning with the Stanley Cups, with the Olympic golds, it's a lot easier to kind of draw a hard line and be like, well, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what you're getting into. And a lot of teams will gravitate towards that and will like that. And I have no doubt in my mind that he's going to have plenty of suitors lining up, whether it's someone who has a coach right now and will eventually fire them or whether it's Seattle down the line. So I'm sure he's going to be, um, he's going to be back and I don't feel bad for him because he's perfectly finally compensated in the meantime and he can enjoy his time off and I'm sure he will do so but I think a part of it is also you see how sometimes the media speaks about him and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, sort of what he does stand for in terms of that kind of working hard no nonsense sort of old school style really resonates with people and I think he treats people really well as well and kind of exudes this air of confidence and strength and so people gravitate towards that i guess like mike commodore is the only person who has famously been uh kind of zigging when other people are zagging but otherwise it seems like everyone does really like mike babcock and so that's why i think uh the narrative was spun this way in terms of like uh people instantly thinking of 
of his next job or, or sort of, um, you know, kind of making excuses for him as opposed to maybe a less tenured, less successful coach that gets fired. And so no one actually really kind of thinks twice about it. Yeah, there's a certain level of charisma. I mean, it's sort of different in a sense because he's not, you know, the he's not necessarily a wordsmith or this guy who's sort of, uh, um, you know, too, um, I guess, you know, motivational or whatever in those in those certain moments in front of the media. But he does capture your attention. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think the media, to a certain extent, will miss a lot of what Mike Babcock offered and, and the fans as well because he was no nonsense. I mean, he told you how he felt, uh, sometimes indirectly, but you knew exactly where he stood on players, on situations, on opposing teams. Uh, he pretty much gave it to you straight up. And he would tell you, he would have an agenda when he came into those uh, press conferences. He would tell you exactly what he wanted to say and what he wanted everybody else to know uh, within usually his first few answers. So uh, in that sense, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of his sort of, part of his his resume, his legacy is is a lot to do with sort of how he sort of uh, approached the position, treated people. Uh, obviously, there's guys like Commodore and, and certain probably members of the Leafs that are, are don't feel like he was, uh, you know, he treated people too well, but uh, uh, he was he was sort of he was different in that respect uh, for sure, um, and that's definitely a part of his his history for sure. I like how we're speaking about him as if he's dead. It's like, oh yeah, remembering <laughs> Mike Babcock. Uh, he's been gone for forty eight hours. Um, no, okay, let's spin this forward. Then enough about Babcock. Enough about what's went wrong. Let's kind of uh, try to figure out how Sheldon Keith and the Leafs can fix this, what they can do. And I think the first thing that sticks out to me. Um, and I guess it was a big battleground and a kind of a line in the sand or a big point of contention for Leafs fans uh, over the past however many months under Mike Babcock was the usage of the top players and particularly um, how heavily they rode Austin Matthews. And you look at some of the um, usage for guys like Nathan McKinnon, especially now with the injuries they've had. You look at Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and you look at some of these teams that uh, aren't as deep and all of a sudden need to rely on their top guys to play 20 21 22 23 sometimes even 24 minutes in a game if they need to win it and the Leafs have really been gun shy and resistant to do that and fully unleash Matthews it feels like they're much more comfortable having him in that sort of 19 minutes per game uh, range and you know with as much as this team invests in their sports science research and how heavily they look into uh, optimizing player performance and all that I'm sure that maybe even management uh, maybe it's, it's a management driven thing where they don't want to play Matthews too much maybe they see something in his playing style or his biometrics that makes them concerned about fully unleashing him and thinking that he can handle that type of workload but it was interesting to me seeing in game one under Sheldon Keefe where he played 1742 at 515 I believe which was the 10th most he's played in his career and he's played whatever 235 games or so under Mike Babcock now they didn't have any power plays in that game so it was much easier to just play him for the full brunt of the 515 five minutes but i do i'm very curious and i think that can go a long way for this new new coaching staff if uh if they do just fully unleash matthews and play him a lot i think just in terms of winning over fans and making them feel like the team's trending in the right direction like it's such a simple thing but i feel like it would go a long way at least in terms of the perception yeah it's interesting not to go right back to babcock but that seemed like the easy adjustment for him right all you had to do is play your player your top players a little bit more and he probably would have appeased a lot of people but he was very reluctant to do that 
guys like Nick Shore taking as much ice as John Tavares is simply, it's just silly. Um, and this was the easiest way for Keith to sort of settle in, was just ride the big guys, right? And you're right, situational factors sort of led to Matthews logging so many even strike minutes because the Maple Leafs didn't see a power play, I don't think, until late in that game. Um, but that's what you want to see. I mean, uh, you're you're a top-heavy roster in terms of, in terms of construction, um, so there should be more uh, onus on those big guys to sort of carry the load, right? Um, and again, it's going to, I think the one thing with Keith, at least that we, what we saw was a, a fluidity to it. I think the, the situation is going to determine, determine what he was doing. And that was a tight game last night, uh, for a little while. And he, and he had every reason to sort of ride Matthews and make sure that they got the result, uh, needed and, and sort of near the end when it was a little bit more obvious how the game was going to go. I think they backed off that, of that a little bit, but again, it's the, the interchangeable parts is what I think. I'm expecting from Keith and that is yeah the, the, there's going to be a lot more fluidity to the game uh and there's going to be offensive zone possession and there's going to be times where the 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 blender just naturally happens because there's going to be an opportunity to make changes on the fly and keep uh offensive shifts going through uh multi, through a line change so I think we're going to see a lot of different combinations but I think it's going to center around those big guys who are going to be unleashed a little bit more and I don't know a, a, an extra minute or two a game that's pretty significant right mm-hmm. but i think the, the more freedom and that's what they talked about the freedom is going to come with playing the way they want to play i think a lot of it is you know matthew's not having to you know check back immediately and to just go chase and hunt down the puck and go get it and i think that's going to maybe increase the shift length a little bit but also probably the amount of shifts as well is going to be something that Sheldon Keith looks for. So I just think that more positive energy is going to be spent under this new regime uh, in both a lo- logging a lot of more ice time, but doing it in a way that's more uh, productive. Uh, and I think that's that definitely what fans have been clamoring for, and I think that's what they're going to get. Yeah, I mean, and if there has been one bright spot on this team this year, it has been sort of, uh, you know, Austin Matthews clearly, but also in his goal scoring, but Willie Nylander, um, you know, with a full sort of regular preseason training camp, not being snake bitten with the percentages anymore. And I think he's looked really dangerous on the puck and kind of been a puck hound in the offensive zone. And that line with Janssen and Matthews, uh, you know, they're 58.6 shot share. They're outscoring teams, 16-11. They have 65% high danger uh, chances. So like, they've been the one saving grace for this team and so that's why it's like it makes it even more imperative i think to give them as much as they can handle and then if the results and the efficiency deteriorates then you can dial it back a little bit but it just feels like uh they haven't really even tried to push those outer boundaries and if they were you know when the bruins do it for example you see games where Marshan and Pasternak and Bergeron play like 16 minutes, right? And and they ha- they're routing a team 5-1 and they don't feel the need to really kind of push the pedal to the metal because they know that at the end of the season, they're going to be a contender. They're going to be competing for a Stanley Cup. They have enough around them to sort of, with the style and system they play, to make up for those minutes and they don't need to ride those guys full bore. The Leafs haven't had any of that real success, right? Like they it's it, they haven't gotten out of the first round. They haven't uh, won the Atlantic Division. They haven't done any of that stuff. So it just it's weird to me that they've gone about it as if they're this kind of perennial contender that has all these accolades and can afford to do this with these veteran players. But in reality, it's a bunch of young guys who haven't necessarily proven anything, who haven't gotten to those later stages of the season. And so I'd like to see them um, really kind of test those outer boundaries and see how far those guys can take them. Yeah, and you definitely want to see when the playoffs come around. I mean, a lot of the frustration 
uh, when they were winning games in the regular season and, you know, locked in that third seed with a couple of months to play, I don't, I don't think it mattered that much. Right. Um, but when you saw it not change in the playoffs and you see Patrick Marlowe out there when they need a goal to tie it up in game game seven or whatever, whatever game that was like the, those are when the ish, those are when those issues pop up when there's that inflexibility in the moments that are so critical. I get it. I get sort of, you know, load managing to a certain extent. Uh, during the regular season and not riding them too hard because yes there are more important games to play there were important games to play in november here for mike babcock and it didn't change but it didn't change when it mattered most and that was with the playoffs there was a small uptick maybe but the certain things just still applied for him whether it's you know bringing the fourth line out after a goal to just not build the momentum but just try and hold the opposition off for one more shift i mean i think those are the big differences there's there's an aggressiveness. And I think that goes back to the backup goaltender situation as well. If you're a really great team, go get those wins. I mean, try to align yourself so that you can get four points, not get the two, and then hope for the best on the second half of the back-to-back. I think it's an, it's a philosophical thing where it's you want you think you're that team, then go be that team. And I think that's the instruction so far. Yeah, it was weird that the the way that they were handled the goalies over these years was the one way, one area that Babcock actually did kind of show that aggression and that sense of urgency in terms of how much they played Frederick Anderson and I think to a fault but um, it, I guess the mismatch for me was weird between we talked about the sense of urgency for, for management now and how um, they really need to finally get over the hump and, and, and have something to show for this core and then you'd look at the actual on ice uh, utilization and it would be like oh well they're falling completely short in that area. I, I remember that game seven against the Bruins last year, not to completely uh, open up those wounds again, but I remember being in the office in Toronto watching with you guys and just being stunned watching the fourth line come out for regular shifts and on the power play, the first unit get pulled after a minute so the second unit can come on. And they were just treating it like it was another game in November when their season was on the line and they were trailing. And that was just such a, a stunning development for me. But maybe, maybe we shouldn't have been stunned based on the way they had approached the regular season and clearly that's what what Babcock wanted to do with the team and you know that's another adjustment here for me for Keith and how they can really get more out of Matthews you look at it the first unit for the Leafs um by my measures uses their first for so the Leafs use their first unit uh the 23rd most often in the league and around 54% of all power play opportunities i believe last time i checked and i think that is clearly not nearly enough when you look at the talent discrepancy between who's playing on the first unit and who's playing on the second unit and considering how little energy you really relatively are using on the power play. I do think you see with Ovechkin, he's clearly a special animal in terms of his ability to just stand at the left circle and not really expend any energy. But I think there's a happy medium there where you could probably get away with playing your top unit a minute, a half, minute and a half out of the two minutes as opposed to this like clean 50-50 split, which the Leafs have seemed to be doing. So I think... Five on five usage aside, I think you could draw a lot more out of Matthews and the top players by simply giving them all of those high leverage, high danger scoring opportunities when they have a man up and their power play has shown in the past to be as lethal as it is. Yeah, I think in a perfect world, um, Austin Matthews sort of even strength ice time sort of stays the same, but you get him out there in those special situations and let it let him ride the full two minutes. I see no reason why he can't play the majority of most power plays. And it's interesting because uh, I think the one thing that was maybe, you know, the best made plans were sort of uh, sort of spoiled a little bit um, with 
having two number one quarterbacks uh, in terms of defensemen on the power play, and they're experimenting obviously now with Morgan Riley and Tyson Berry playing together, but it really limited Tyson Berry to what he was able to do. And I think it also limits William Nylander, who was um, maybe not anymore, but was the guy who was sort of relegated to that second unit. So you have these five guys that are unbelievably talented and should be lighting it up, uh, but are underperforming. And then you kind of have two players that should be, that are good enough for a first power play, but are limited to scraps and guys that are just not going to be able to help them or facilitate facilitate them in that regard. So I think the power play was a big issue uh, under the Babcock regime because of that. Um, but what I'd like to see now is maybe have uh, what Matthews and maybe Riley or Barry sort of play the entire thing and then maybe switch out the other three guys where you're just loading up with the guys who are going to give you the best chance to score uh, and playing them for the full two minutes and then bringing out different pieces instead of that full line shift after the first time it's cleared down the ice after 45 seconds, the next unit's coming on. And more often than not, with all the injuries, it's been guys like Alex Kerfoot and Nick Patan yeah. and Jason Spezza. And you just can't rely on those guys to regularly put up, up, up offense. And it's it just seems silly when you're sending a guy like Austin Matthews to the bench in favor of them. Well, you know, I've seen uh, the 2019 Blues example is going to be the one that always gets cited now after a team, a talented team with high expectations makes an in-season coaching change because of how their year went last year clearly and then being like sort of prime example of a team uh, that was literally last in the league changing their coach and winding up winning the Stanley Cup but I think that was much more I mean the team certainly wound up playing better and their underlying numbers skyrocketed under Craig Berube but for me that was much more like all right we're just going to find a new goalie and this goalie is going to get hot and carry us I think the much more apt example here is the 2016 Penguins where it was a talented, skilled team that was really being bogged down by sort of a more old school, traditional coach in Mike Johnston, where he wanted them to play this type of hockey that they just weren't suited for with their personnel. And they bring in Mike Sullivan from their AHL affiliate, and he just fully empowers and unleashes these guys to play the type of hockey they've played over the past handful of years. And they win two Stanley Cups and they have all the success. And you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe they weren't playing this way the entire time. And I think for Leafs fans, that would be what I would be clinging on to for hope where we already saw it in game one a little bit. I think with Tyson Berry, you know, on the one hand, um, the players do need to execute better and play better. And there's no excuses for that. On the other hand, it's a coach's job to put the players into position to succeed. And I think we heard on the broadcast time and time again in that first game on the Sheldon Keith where it was like, the defensemen are going to be emboldened or empowered to be much more aggressive, to jump up in the play, to really get involved. And that's when Tyson Berry's at his best. I think, you know, the night and day example of him is the last game under Babcock. He has that one turnover that leads to the goal, I believe, by Thomas Noshek, where he strips him and it's a breakaway and, and it's a backbreaker for the Leafs. And he looked in that moment kind of carrying the puck out of the defensive zone like he wanted to be that Tyson Berry of the past where he wants to aggressively do something and jump up in the play but then in the back of the head he's like he can hear Mike Babcock yelling at him to kind of make a safe play off the boards or not really try to do anything and so he gets kind of caught in this no man's land and it leads and you can't play hockey that way and then against Arizona we see him aggressively jump up in the offensive zone take the puck from the blue line all the way in and he gets a nice goal there and it does feel like there was um it's just one game but it does feel like that really sort of embodied this difference or this philosophical difference of like 
you're skilled, you can skate, you have puck skills, so utilize those and be aggressive and we can live with the mistakes when they happen. What we can't live with is you playing a type of game that you just aren't suited for with your skill set. Yeah, I agree. I think what really suffered with under Babcock was their play in neutral ice. I mean, getting it from the from the defensive zone to the offensive zone, I think was a big issue. And a lot of times, I think that Tyson Berry play was a big was an easy example where you just had defensemen sort of with possession of the puck skating up and not ha- really having any options. And I think that was maybe. I mean, it was a little bit different. I think he I think he wanted to make you know wanted to make that play that individual play, uh, but maybe second guessed it or whatever, and it obviously backfired on him. Um, but what we saw under Keith was a was a far different approach to breaking the puck out, which was there's not players standing around waiting for passes. The, the forwards are coming back and going to get it and supporting that defenseman. And I think with that, if there is a mistake made, then they're they're more likely to be able to cover for it because there's a lot more movement and a lot of more guys involved. Um, with Barry, I think there was a lot of just you know standing waiting for the pass, especially on the power play zone entries, just horrific. We're seeing the same thing over and over again with the drop pass, a lot of standing around, and it's on one guy to make the move that that gets them into the zone. Um, and as talented as they are, maybe they didn't have the perfect guy to do that. I mean, I look like a Matt Mar- Barzal who just, you know, is such an expert in that regard. I don't think they had a guy who could do it all them himself. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think one of the biggest things that Keith can do is change the way they get from point A to point B. And Tyson Berry is probably going to be one of the one of the guys who benefits most from that. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to kind of remove some of those system constraints or really give the green light to players to be aggressive and active when they see opportunities, Barry is going to be the big beneficiary. And, you know, heading into this season uh, with the success he had, piling up the points and, and sort of uh, in a more sheltered role, thriving offensively for the Avalanche over the years, it's been really jarring to watch him this year where they tried to turn him uh, paired with Jake Muzzin into this like more sort of traditional shutdown uh, matchup defenseman and you saw his offensive zone starts came all the way down you saw him look completely kind of clueless and lost out there at times and uh, I'm very curious to see how he looks under Sheldon Keefe I'm very curious what to see what they do with him because in game one we already see them tr- we already saw them try many different looks they you know we saw him paired with Muzzin but we also saw him paired with Dermot we saw him playing with Morgan Riley at times we saw him on the top power play unit and so if they're going to use him the way that he should be utilized or he was utilized in the past I think there's certainly an ability to salvage him here and you know the logic was pretty clear when they went out and acquired him you know one was to replace what they were missing with Jake Gardner walking in free agency but it was like this guy excels at moving the puck at stretch passes at being aggressive uh kind of going north south and the Leafs were one of the heaviest uh, teams reliant upon those stretch passes on that kind of quick run and gun off the rush attack. And so for them to completely pivot and become this cycle team that really grinds games out seems so counterintuitive with acquiring Barry. And so he does have a new lease on life here. And I wonder if he can salvage his stock because, you know, you looked at the upcoming free agent class and he certainly based on his production last year, looked like he was going to get paid. And I wonder, um, how many millions of dollars he's cost himself so far this season now thankfully there's whatever 55 60 games left and potentially a playoff run and so if he can get back to being that type of guy that he was i think people will be willing to forgive these 20 games and chalk it up to being a babcock thing and a bad stylistic fit because it doesn't look like his skills like you know deteriorated or he's washed up or declined it just looks like it was a horrible sort of uh pairing between the two so i'm really curious just like 
as a thought exercise how much money he cost himself and how much of it he can uh, recapture here over these next however many months. Yeah, I think he's going to have a chance to recoup some of that value, though, because it looks like the plan is to weaponize him. You mentioned that he moved up and down sort of the defensive pairing, starting with Morgan Riley, which almost seemed like a demonstration for Mike Babcock, just sort of uh, putting it out there that, yes, we can, you know, he can do other things. Uh, but yeah, moving around with Dermot, moving around with uh, Jake Muzzin. Again, I think a lot a lot of what he wants to see is that that these players aren't going to be married to their p- specific pairings. We want you... We want Travis Dermott to be able to play with Morgan Riley and Morgan Riley to be able to play with Jake Muzzin. And all the pieces just work because we're doing things um, a certain way. Uh, but it's interesting. I think one of the most, one of the tweets that I put out there that like got the most traction was Mike Babcock sort of suggesting that Tyson Berry had to reinvent his game. And I think that's the most obvious sort of divide between what ha- was happening and what needed to happen. This is a guy who is a specialist. He is an offensive player who can, you know, as you mentioned, put stretch passes right on the tape, but also finish in the offensive zone as much as he's a quarterback. Uh, We saw early in training camp that this is one of the most dangerous shooters just in practice. Like, he's got a really nice release, and we obviously saw that in Arizona. So I think the plan is to unleash him. I think that was the plan all along, but it wasn't wasn't done the way that Kyle Dubas anticipated. And now I think he's going to be one of those guys that looked at to just make an impact when you're on the ice. Uh, not try to be something that he wasn't well i'm excited i think he's the perfect representation of sort of this uh new lease on life or, or new optimism for this team because i remember uh sitting in that in that fine yahoo studio that you're sitting in right now recording this podcast and you and i before the season heavily debating whether the lightning or the Leafs should be the first team in the watchability rankings and i guess neither team should be should have even been under consideration based on how it's looked so far but you know i think the leafs have been pretty clearly the biggest disappointment in terms of an aesthetic perspective where they just haven't resembled the team that we thought they were gonna at all regardless of the results and so if they are going to open it up if they are going to start looking more like that team that they look like over the past couple seasons that would go a long way towards um at least like making them fun to watch because that's been the really kind of uh biggest point of frustration for me it's like i used they they used to be appointment viewing and the past however many weeks have just been such a slog watching this team and i guess based on the first game it's just one game but there is uh reason for hope that they're going to start resembling more of that team especially as they get healthy and mitch marner gets back in the lineup certainly there's obviously a lot of work to do in terms of implementing the system getting bodies back and finding the right formula uh, but you can tell uh, that even before they hit the ice, that there was there was an eagerness to play this to play this way to play for Keith. Obviously, there is a lot of familiarity. Coached fourteen of the guys that are on the team right now, so they they kind of know what to expect. A lot is made, obviously, about the adjustment here, but a lot of guys knew what to expect, and I think that was pretty apparent. But um, that's that's the one thing. Like they might not, they still have a lot long way to go to even make the playoffs. Um, but they can be that team that's very entertaining because that's just how it, that's just how it's going to be now. It looks like um, they might, you know, there's going to be some problems that happen with activating the defense all the time. And I think we saw a little bit of it, even though it really didn't hurt them in any way. Um, but so I think that entertainment value, even if you know the wins don't are you know don't come immediately, and maybe there's not enough for them to even get to the point where they were last year. Uh, but I think they should be a, a lot more entertaining to watch for sure. Well, especially with the developments in the Atlantic where, you know, we can put Boston aside for now. And I think thankfully for the Leafs fans, I mean, I guess they're at the point now where you can't 
take the playoffs as a foregone conclusion because of how much they've struggled and they're still on the outside looking in although there's a lot of season left but I think at this point they have to kind of focus on themselves and they can't project ahead to the playoffs but it seems pretty clear that the Bruins are going to win the Atlantic and at least they won't have to worry about, about them in round one and so if that's the case I mean Tampa Bay is still scary because of the names but now they have their own injuries and they've certainly underwhelmed themselves and then beyond that it's a lot of like you know Florida has the similar issues where they have a ton of talent, great power play, can score a lot, but even with the addition of Bobrovsky, they still have defensive woes, and I feel like you'd feel confident beating them in a 5-4 game. Um, You know, the Sabres have completely fallen off the map. The Red Wings and the Senators obviously aren't aren't a concern, and so the most interesting team for me is actually Montreal, where they've like pretty clearly been the second-best team in the Atlantic based on their play, and and they are such a fascinating matchup for the Leafs as well beyond uh, all of the sort of vitriol and, and hatred between the fan base is it's like it seems like those two teams always play these fun back and forth games and Montreal wants to certainly get into a a 5-on-5 track meet and has a ton of speed and skill as well so uh, just kind of looking ahead it it really has opened up beyond the number one seed in Boston and so I think that should provide some hope as well where if Tampa Bay was living up to their full potential and then Florida had you know solved all their their issues with Sergei Bobrovsky you'd be like oh well now the Leafs are really in trouble and they're really fighting for a wild card but we're still so early in the season that I think that's why uh, the team did feel imperative bringing it back to the Babcock firing and kind of pulling full circle on this. There is that opening and they didn't want to waste any more time because uh, the season can quickly get away from you. But for the time being, despite how rough the first 22, 23 games have been, there's still so much room left for them to realize that potential and get right back into this thing. Yeah, you're right. I think think one of the keys is that expectations do have to change a little bit i think how are we going to avoid boston i think that conversation was well, well we got to win the division title right, right. I, and i don't obviously i don't think that's really um really realistic anymore i, I mean it's still going to be a battle to make the playoffs i mean you mentioned florida montreal tampa bay uh we've probably seen the best out of one of those teams and, and still uh the maple leafs will be chasing the other two right so uh I, yeah i mean going back to montreal i mean look we wanted something to change, obviously, uh, with Toronto and Boston meeting each other. Just, be, just from you know, from a from a fan perspective, obviously, it's sort of the same old thing. Covering the same old storylines is is a little bit stale. Uh, but with just seeing something new, Montreal seems like it would be just awesome to see. Because every time those teams meet, even with Babcock trying to dumb things down from a <laughs> from a sort of overall perspective with the Maple Leafs, it's always fun when those teams meet. Just, just two teams. Um, that right now should be playing sort of the same way with that with that pressure that tempo and just trying to get the best out of everything that they have on the ice so uh i'm obviously as someone covering the leafs you sort of want to see a chapter a playoff chapter that's pretty important obviously uh, to see them get to that point but to see a new story a new chapter written will be really exciting and, and there's nothing better than montreal but again uh that is not that is not guaranteed right now, and I guess beggars can't be choosers because the Leafs are going to have to play really, really solid uh, to get themselves in that position. And who knows? They might end up in the wild card, and they could be looking up at Boston again. <laughs> that is that is actually very true. I didn't even think of that. Um, yeah, man. Well, I, I think we kind of covered all the bases here. Is there anything else we discussed? We kind of we didn't really. I mean, we started off. We obviously talked about Babcock Lock. We talked about the adjustments and what the new coaching staff can do. Uh, I think we talked about Dubas a little bit at the start in terms of um, you know 
I think when a situation goes this horribly and you fail to live up to expectations to the degree that they have, uh, no one is blameless. And I think the players certainly need to play better. I think some of the decision-making maybe Dubas is, and whether it was uh, Shanahan motivated, but the decision to bring Babcock back in the first place to start the season, uh, we can kind of revisit that. But I don't know, like, is there is there anything else that we haven't discussed in terms of X-factors or people who should take some of the blame or, or sort of reasons for optimism or, or or what have you here? Uh, I think we touched a lot on the on the reasons for optimism. Uh, it, it's tough though because we, I think we were given a lot last night in terms of, of actual things to break down and changes that were made. Because I wasn't expecting really much to be different, but it was clearly different. So uh, obviously, go doing a deeper evaluation on Sheldon Keith and what he's going to be able to do is is something that is going to have to happen down the line a little bit. Um, but the early returns, obviously, it, it's immensely positive, and there's a huge test coming up against a team that that sort of plays that style in Colorado on the weekend. But um, I think this it was it's re- it really was a new era, uh, something changing, something drastic changing with the end of Mike Babcock and now this, uh, where it's full Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keith and exactly what he wanted from the very beginning. And I think from a very long time, this is what. This is what he's wanted. It's why he turned down interest from Colorado. It's why they paid Sheldon Keefe a ton of money to stay in the organization because this was the end point we were always going to get to. I think we got there earlier than we anticipated, uh, but this Dubis-Keefe combination, was it's been written in the stars for a while in Toronto, and now we're going to finally see it unfold. Yeah, I mean, Dubas, when what, he went on radio or whatever, or he was talking to the media, he said he's willing to bet his career on this, and uh, yeah. you know he finally has his coach. Uh, you know, the, I think... I think you and I would both agree that uh, the Leafs are certainly an imperfect team, but this idea that uh, the way they're built or that you can't win with skill in today's game is so silly when you look at some of the teams that have had success from the Blackhawks to the Penguins to, to the Lightning. I mean, there's many way, different ways to win in the NHL, but this idea that, oh, you score too many goals, so you're you know fatally flawed come the postseason is such a silly one. And so they have this vision in mind. Um, they finally have everyone seemingly pulling in the right direction where I think the best organizations have a vision from the top down and everyone sticks to it and everyone's enacting it. And so I think now with Sheldon Keefe in place, he's clearly based on his history with Dubas and the fact that he, he's handpicked them, um, going to be willing to follow through with that and use the personnel the way that was intended. And so I think that's encouraging. And I think also the connection with the players. I mean, you don't want to talk, we don't, we're not in the room, so you don't want to buy into much of this idea that the team was checked out or the team wasn't, um, you know, fully embracing Babcock or what have you. But I mean, the NHL has taught us that eventually a coach's message rings hollow. I mean, you look at the shelf life of coaches, the fact that I think there's only like seven or eight guys who have been with their team since before 2016. I mean, usually goes like three, four year windows and all of a sudden uh, the carousel spins. And so, um, you know, a younger coach that's already has some history with some of these guys in the lower levels, I think it's going to go a long way. And so, I don't know, I, just because, uh, you know, you cover the Leafs and, and it's a Canadian team and, and that Eastern bias, like I think people are going to be like, oh, these two guys are are way too optimistic about this team that is still 500 and still has a lot of a, a lot of warts but i think the the pieces are in place especially relatively speaking considering how bad they've been early on um to at least get back to what that team that we had preseason expectations for and the team that we saw over the past couple regular seasons and at this point um even though that doesn't come with you know playoff success that would be a massive win and i think a massive step into the right direction for the team 
Yeah, the optimism is there for the same reason that it was before. And that was, yes, this is a supremely talented team, but it was sort of being undone by a certain way uh, of looking at the game. And now there's what makes it even more intriguing, and, and it might not just be optimism, but more intrigue and what's going to happen is that they finally have everything flowing in the right direction, we think, uh, with this coach who, who again, over it's been proven over years that he sees the game the way Dubas wants to uh, seize it as well. So the optimism is what's to come. It's this challenge that a underperforming but immensely talented team has under a new coach who we don't know that much about and we don't know how he's going to handle the situation of being in Toronto. Uh, but it was it was obviously a dream start for him. But I think it's more of the this is very interesting and we I can't wait personally to see what happens to this team uh, down the stretch. And obviously I'm I'm pretty fortunate to be there for most of it. All right, man. Well, uh, I think we hit it all here for now. We can revisit this and relitigate it later down the road, uh, which I'm sure we will. Plug some stuff. What uh, you know? What are you working on? How are you keeping busy? Where can people check out your work? Yeah, taking a well. It wasn't a break this week because obviously Mike Babcock <laughs> happened. But uh, yeah, a little road trip this week. But I've got, I've got uh, coverage after every game. Uh, we try to do some fun video content on Yahoo Sports. Try to do things a little bit differently. Explore the digital space. Uh, we're going to be launching some more fun things uh, upcoming this, I guess, maybe even before the new year. Uh, but yeah, just writing about beliefs and no longer writing about Mike Babka. Well, uh, I'm glad we did this. It was a blast. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing what's to come. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to catching up with you down the road. Uh, I'll, I'll be back in Toronto, I think, probably... Uh, Trade deadline for sure, but I'm sure I'll see you maybe at the All-Star break or something like that, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do some more podcasts and more videos together because it's always a blast. Absolutely. The full Keith breakdown. Appreciate <laughs> it, man. I'm looking forward. Talk to you, man. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.